Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. We've had the occasional trip up on a part for an ice machine or something that we couldn't get and we've had to respond accordingly and be able to pivot, which our team, again, has done a great job of doing. We just certainly haven't seen the inflation or supply chain challenges that we've heard about with other companies. With supply chain bottlenecks causing record shortages of many products Americans need, here's a retail business that's managed to skirt the issue and deliver for their customers. Again, I think it goes back to simple, right? I mean, the more simple the business, the more effective. And fortunately, we have the numbers to back it up. And we sit in a pretty good spot. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. With COVID-19 mandates relaxing and consumers eager to rejoin the real world, the beverage industry has been bouncing back. However, the landscape is not exactly what it used to be. And while doors are open, there's always new challenges. Changes in consumer habits as a result of the pandemic, along with the much-discussed supply chain issues, have forced many in the industry to reconsider best practices. 2021 even saw industry giant Starbucks close nearly 400 of their sit-down locations in favor of simplified pick-up-and-take-away options. They're onto something, but they weren't the first to get there. Dutch Bros Coffee is a drive through coffee chain headquartered in Oregon that has had big-time success with its model for years. It's a brand that has been a 30-year overnight success and an amazing case study on building a culture that is foundational to stakeholder success. My guest today is Dutch Bros CEO Joth Ricky, who steered the company through their 2021 IPO after joining in 2019. With little over 500 units and 15 years of positive comp store sales, Joth and Dutch Bros seem poised for success as a public company. I sat down with Joth to talk about the business model that helped them avoid the obstacles other retail beverage companies have experienced in the last few years, their plans to continue expanding into new geographies, and why their focus on employee satisfaction and company culture is really paying off. Let's enter the arena with Joth Ricky. So I've been with Dutch Bros now, this is starting my fourth year, and was brought in as part of private equity investment um, into Dutch. And I had worked with TSG previously with Stumptown Coffee as we sold that business to Pete's and ultimately to JAB. And my background really, I'm a 30-year kind of consumer products guy. I grew up at Johnson & Johnson working for the people who dealt with the Tylenol tamperines of the 80s. I got a great education and business for 10 years and then decided I wanted to you know, have my family be in the Pacific Northwest and landed back in beverage. And for the last 20 years, I've done 
about every piece of beverage you can do. I've run a distributor. I've, I've run other brands. I've run soda. I've dealt with beer. I've, I've run coffee businesses, a wine business. And Travis Borsma, our founder, and I had met about five, six years ago now. He was running Dutch Bros. I was running Stumptown. And we got together to talk cold brew. And, and I think that uh, we genuinely just really enjoyed the day. And, and when the opportunity to, came up to work together again, we both gave it a hell yeah and have been really enjoying our partnership um, since that day. Yeah, it's such a cool story. And I read somewhere that you grew up wanting to be either a teacher or a coach. And uh, it sounds like you're both uh, as the CEO of Dutch Bros. Is that accurate? That's accurate. I, actually, my degree is in education, and all I ever really wanted to be was a teacher and a coach, and I never made it to the classroom. I have said that my companies are my classroom, and my style of leadership is more on teaching and education and working with my teams to make them better and really just improving the fundamentals of what we do every day. So it's kind of the combination of the practice court on a basketball floor and then putting lesson plans together uh, in the classroom. I think that those very core fundamentals uh, apply to business every day. No question about it. So, Joth, for our listeners on the East Coast who may not know the brand, how would you describe Dutch Bros and kind of what you guys do every day? This is a 30-year brand new startup business. Dutch Bros has really been built and and grown on the West Coast since 1992. It's a 30-year-old business that kind of grew up Really, with Starbucks as well. I mean, every market that we're in, Starbucks has been in, and we've kind of grown out of the Northwest together. They obviously went a lot faster and bigger. And really, Dutch Bros is a culture business. From day one, this business has been about serving the customer and understanding the customer's need and treating them very well. Also, treating our internal customer very well through our employees. We have broistas, and we have masters of broistas, and we have a team that's out there really not just serving great drinks, but also treating people with the ultimate service model. And as I've said to any of our investors or people who've been new to the brand over the last few years, the one thing we can all agree to is that all of us love great, authentic service. And I think the Dutch Bros is really about great, authentic service. And we just happen to do it through beverages. And what do you think the advantage is when you look across the landscape of your peers, competitors, whatever, of just kind of maniacally focusing in on beverages? Our business is pretty simple, right? I mean, we keep a very simple ingredient base. We don't have ovens and kitchens, and we're a drive-through business. We have very few walk-in locations um, of the 575 locations we have today. We're really focused on doing what we do and, and doing it very, very well. We don't complicate it. A lot of people have talked about supply chain problems in those issues that if you're serving food and you have all of these 150 ingredients that a maybe a, a classic QSR chain would have. We have basically 12 and then some extensions of that. So if we're a very simple model. We have a very simple menu. We have a, a core base of espresso and energy drinks and things like that. But what we're really about is customizing it to the way that the customer wants. So we want that. We want the customer to walk away with the drink that they wanted or maybe the drink that they didn't know they could get that turns into their favorite beverage. I have to think the team at the at the store level has to be all in, pumped up, enthusiastic. You know, we've already talked a little bit about culture, but I noticed that you actually have numbers to back up how tight and forward thinking that culture is. Can you comment on, first of all, the culture of the company, where that came from, and then the store level turnover percentage, which is just so impressive relative to the industry? In a people business, if you don't treat your people well, if they don't do well, then the customer will not come back. And so 
I think you have to be incredibly mindful of our people. So this culture is really, it's a build from within culture. So we don't hire from the outside in our management ranks. Everybody grows up from within at the company. We have a culture of what we call regional operators, where we're matching our growth in real estate with our growth actually in people performance. And so we will not add new locations. We won't commit to locations unless we feel like we have the right leadership available in the system to be able to grow with that. And I think by having our regional operators, when they go into a new market like Nashville recently, but you have somebody who's been with the company for five to 10 years, give or take, then while we build out a stand and we send ingredients in there, they really have the recipe of what type of profile of people they're hiring, how to train, how to really do moment management and how to grow their people into doing that. And we've had people tell us that they think we're one of the best youth development organizations in the country because of the way that we do things. It's fun to teach people great people skills. And I think that by doing that, you inherently treat the customer very well and serve them a a great experience. That store level turnover number, Jeff, is way better than the industry average. Is that correct? We just do what we do, right? We're kind of in the low to mid 50s over the last few quarters, even with the great resignation and some of the challenges we saw a lot of other companies having. I think that our turnover percentage coming out of the, the fourth quarter and into the first part of the first quarter of this year was in the low 50s. In many cases, I think that's about a third of industry average. So we have people that like what they do. They like the environment they work in. Um, they like the people they're working with. And I think if people don't, they can opt out and that's okay. We tell people we love them in and love them out the door because we understand that their relationship with us for the most part is going to be for a short period of time in their lives, but we want them to have a great experience. And if it doesn't work for them, then that's okay. One thing I think that a lot of retail businesses face, your peers, even in other consumer facing businesses, the portability of the concept. You guys have hit it out of the park going out of your core geographic market in the Pacific Northwest. Have you been able to prove that concept in new markets with different attitudes, different states, different people? What do you think the secret to that success is? The credit to the company for the 27 years before I got here was really knowing who they are and what they're really good at. And most of the real estate that was developed you know, prior to 2019 was done through windshield tests. And it was a feel of Is this the right neighborhood? Does it feel right? Does it look right? Does it hit the right spot? What we've been able to do is kind of balance that look at how the company felt about communities and where to be. And then, you know, over the last three or four years, we've put some really good data behind that. We've built out trade zones. We modeled out where we wanted to be. We've looked at real estate and what kind of real estate we want to be in versus the real estate we don't want to be in. I think one of our advantages is that we don't require the real estate square footage maybe that other people do. We're a skinny rectangle business that goes deep into a lot versus needing a bunch of uh, storefront up front. So what we've done is really modeled from the success that the company had in the 27 years and really looked at new communities and new trade zones for us to go into. So there's a combination of finding new locations like Southern California and Texas, which we've talked a lot about. We're also doing quite a bit of infill in new locations. The number one issue we have is, is our lines are too long. So we're trying to really balance and making sure we have a great customer experience. And we want to make sure we give everybody the opportunity to come in. And And I think the way our teams have really looked at new markets, they've found good locations. We have the right amount of infill that we put into a market right away. And we've got a full plan basically for every trade zone we walk into. Yeah. Just speaking of that infill strategy, you go into a market with one unit and it's kind of land and expand. What is your most mature market? And 
how many units are in that market or how long does it take to build something like that out? It's a complicated answer. Um, you take a market like Oregon, which is where we started. We have 150 some locations in a state that has just over 4 million people. So you do the math on that. And those AUVs are quite a bit smaller than the system AUVs, but they still do very well um, in communities. And many of those have been around for 25, 30 years. When you look at mature big cities, we've got a market like Sacramento that's 15 plus years in the making, uh, has 45 plus locations, and we're pretty well penetrated in that area, but still doing quite a bit of infill to grow out a market like that that continues to grow. And you look at a place like Phoenix, we feel like you know we've got quite a bit upside in like the Phoenix and Arizona market and really the Colorado market, which Colorado we went into 10 years ago and now have over 25 locations. What we like is even in California where, you know, we've got a nice business in California, our white space modeling showed we're about 30% penetrated. So we think the upside just uh, in that community is, is tremendous. The growth story from the investor perspective is real easy. It's kind of new units and um, same store sale growth. In terms of new units, maybe you can talk a little bit about what the IPO meant to you in terms of the balance sheet and your corporate infrastructure. And do you have the financial and human resources to kind of add those 125 units in 2022? And how do you feel about your position relative to uh, prior to the IPO? Having done a few other public companies, I, I think that the structure and the discipline that being a public company creates, I think, it makes you a better company. The infrastructure that you're you know, really required to hire, the reporting that you're required to do, I think makes you better in everything else that you do. And it forces you to look further out. It forces you to plan ahead. It forces you to be committed to a game plan and be able to resource that. We're growing into that. We've put a lot of good people in place and we've added some great resources to the company over the last couple of years to prepare for this. But I think we're still growing into that. I think our, our GNA still has some work to do. And, and then we'll just learn and get better as we get more reps at the business. I will tell you that I think our real estate team and our field ops team, which are really the two most important pieces of creating that growth and why we can commit to the 125 with confidence and why we can look out to that 4,000 that we've talked about. I think those two components of what we do are, you know, they're the most important pieces of the puzzle. And those teams, they've been preparing for a long time for this moment. For the last four years, we've incrementally grown our new locations by 20, 30% every year. That practice that we've put in over the last few years has really prepared us for the next phase of growth. And I think what the IPO has done for us is it's given us a communication platform and maybe even a press platform that raised a ton of awareness around Dutch Bros. We go into Nashville and people are like, oh yeah, we've heard of you guys. We're excited to have you here. And I don't think we could have done that before. While Dutch Bros has found success with new units, they're also driving same-store sales growth. I asked Joth how initiatives like their new rewards program with 3.2 million users, the adoption of more and better technology, and pricing strategies impact their current and future same-store sales. On the February 1st of, of last year, we launched the rewards program, and after decades of a paper stamp card. And um, we weren't sure what the adoption rate was going to be, but right away, our biggest fans of that program were our broistas. As I mentioned earlier, our, our number one challenge is too long a lines. 
And so we've got to be more efficient in how we do that. And that rewards program removes friction in the line. So our baristas recognized right away how that app was going to help them perform better at what they do. I think, too, is that we've upped our digital game. I think digital is so much more than posting on social media like it was five years ago. The digital playbook that companies run now can be very sophisticated. And I'm a big believer, and I know our founder is a big believer in just upping our digital game. And we'll use that rewards platform um, as a way to reward the customer through that activity. Number three is just is continued awareness around the brand. I think that our funnel is low awareness, high adoption when we get into market. One of our big challenges is in Dutch Bros Coffee is in our brand name, but yet coffee is only a third of our business. So when we go into a market like Texas or Nashville, it's like we're not just selling lattes here. Like we, got, we have a lot of other things that people can come into. A big topic these days across the industry and really every industry, and you mentioned it earlier, was the supply chain stuff, labor costs, commodity costs. Maybe talk about how that affects you or maybe not as much as your peers or others in the industry. From a labor standpoint, I mean, we're a West Coast company, right? So the three highest minimum wage you know, markets in the country are, are the three Western states, right? So we've kind of We've already grown up in a high wage model. We've really proven our business model in those $15 an hour minimum wage markets, which show themselves in the Northwest and in California. And, and so I think we've been prepared to work in that model and really run our business in the way that we run our wage program, along with our tip program. Our, we do have a, a very extensive tip program and our, the way that our, our customers work with our broistas and our people at the window, they really acknowledge and reward them with tips. That's been a, a big advantage for us over the last few months. I think two is on the supply chain. You know, Like I said earlier, we work with a pretty small ingredient base. And so we're working very closely with a very small amount of suppliers that are doing that. Now, we've had the occasional trip up on a part for an ice machine or something that we couldn't get. And we've had to respond accordingly and be able to pivot, which our team, again, has done a great job of doing. We just certainly haven't seen the inflation or supply chain challenges that we've heard about uh, with other companies. And it goes back to simple, right? I mean, the more simple the business, the more effective. And fortunately, we have the numbers to back it up. You know, we sit in a pretty good spot. Yeah. And we're seeing other companies just trying to go in your direction. It's hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube. Once you have tons of SKUs and all, you know, menu changes and all that kind of stuff, it's just awesome to have a business that's very focused, very simple. For those people that don't know, what does it cost to build a unit? And you can pick a year. What are the typical sales as that unit matures, you know, maybe in year two or three? And what are the margins and the returns on that capital? Because it just seems so impressive to me. I will try not to embarrass my CFO, but cost-wise on these units, let's call it somewhere between 1.2 and 1.6. We've seen our new locations come out of the ground at an average AUV at between 2 and 2.2 million. Our average AUV in the system is 1.8. So we're definitely coming out of the ground with better unit economics and seeing better traffic in these new markets. Margin-wise, We've been told that our margin numbers and our EBITDA numbers are industry leading, and um, maybe we'll let other people fill in the blanks related to that. But I think because our supply chain and our logistics and, and everything is so simple, you know, we run a pretty efficient business uh, with a lot of throughput. 
I think what you said earlier is you're just getting, you know, repetition after repetition. And that I always think is like the most exciting part about growing a business. You know, you make all these little decisions, all these little mistakes. You don't make the big mistake, but you learn from everything and you just get better and better and better. And it sounds to me when you look at that cash on cash return and the margins and the use of technology, taking the exact numbers out of it, things are really moving in the right direction in terms of efficiency with capital allocation and stuff like that. It's a really good point. And I, you know, one of the things we talked about going into this IPO process was we're going to talk to a lot of people who have a lot of ideas about our business. I think that you can get filled with a lot of ideas and maybe a lot of incremental ideas that they aren't accretive to your business. And um, I think you just kind of got to be who you are and, and own it and not get drugged to the mean. As I've mentioned to, to many people, it's like stay disciplined, stay who you are be really good at what you do and be careful about doing things that you don't do. Because in any business I've been in, I haven't found those to be very accretive to your company. Now that you have a new job of talking to shareholders all the time, and that's uh, an increasingly important part of what you do. You know, it's interesting having done what I do for 25 years. Sometimes you'll get in a room and talk about the story. What do you think the one or two things that investors may not appreciate about Dutch Bros? Is there ever times when people kind of don't get a very important point about the business? The one thing that we've run into just because of our proximity and because of COVID and, and where we were is that 90% of the people we talked to had actually never been to a stand. And so while we can explain the business through a presentation and spreadsheets and kind of show the numbers and all that, but until you've actually been and visited you really won't get the concept or appreciate it at the level that that you do once you go there. And so as we've met with maybe a team of investors, we find that maybe after a second or third meeting that somebody raises their hand and they say, hey, I actually, I went to Denver and I visited a couple of locations in Denver and they look at us and they go, you were right. That place is amazing. I think that as we get more people that get exposure to the service and the model that we do, you know, I think in this business, you can get spreadsheeted to death and everybody wants to comp you. And we've been pretty clear, like, hey, we're not Chipotle. We're not Shake Shack. You know, we're actually not a traditional QSR business. So you have to look at us in a way that we actually compete in the world of beverage and we travel in a way that beverages travel and our service, we think it's the best you'll find, but you got to experience it to love it. My last question is, I know you guys, giving back is a big part of what you do every day. Maybe you can spend a second telling us about what you guys do in terms of like giving back to the community. Our mission statement is to be a fun-loving, mind-blowing company making a massive difference one cup at a time. And, um, and through that is the work that we do in community through the Dutch Bros Foundation. And we have three anchor events um, that we market annually. We have one that's um, around food security, where we donate to the local food banks that we're in in every community that we're in, providing hundreds of thousands of meals in the one day that we do in Dutch Love. Uh, we have Drink One for Dane, which is um, supporting ALS. Our co-founder passed away of ALS in, in 2009. I believe this year will come close to... Um, doing through its lifetime now over $10 million of gifting to solving for ALS. And then we have a program in September that we call Buck for Kids, where we support local youth organizations, again, in every community that we're in. And, and I think the importance of philanthropy is one is that we're teaching our employees about the importance and the feeling that you get when you give and you help others, and hopefully our customers as well. And then 
Two is that we can be big and be small by making sure that we connect locally, whether it's Stockton, California, or Smyrna, Tennessee, or College Station, Texas. Uh, We want to make sure that you look at a Dutch Bros and you feel like we're part of the community, not just in business and us treating customers well, but also treating the community well. And we do hundreds of other uh, local givebacks that we encourage our stands to do on a regular basis as well. So I think last year we gave probably north of $5 million away. Um, during COVID, we were north of $7 million. And um, we'll give to wildfire relief. We do a lot of disaster recovery type programming as well as, as we'll help other communities. So it's a really important part of what we do. We have a great team that has a lot of experience in supporting communities. These days, investment decisions of stakeholders are being more and more influenced by their perception of a company's ethics and contributions to causes they care about. But Dutch Bros philanthropic activities are not just a check-the-box exercise. They really care about doing right by their local communities, customers, and employees. That ethos is a huge factor in their success, especially when combined with some really smart and strategic decisions. With a great coach and educator like Joth Rickey at the helm, it seems likely they'll continue on their growth track while still staying true to their roots and unique company culture. At Welcome to the Arena, we're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. One more big thank you to Joth Rickey at Dutch Bros Coffee for joining me on the show today. Really cool company with a great vibe, and I couldn't be happier to see them experiencing so much success after going public. For our East Coast listeners, if you're not familiar with the brand, you soon will be, and you'll definitely check them out at DutchBros.com. I'm Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only, and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.